there was a couple uh, who was married 60 years, and uh, it was 60 years of faithfulness, it was 60 years of honesty, 60 years of intimacy and communication. It was, it was just ideal, and um, there was just one catch. Uh, this lady had a, a, a box that she had kept in her closet, and she had forbade her husband from ever looking into it. Uh, when she was on her deathbed, though, she, she looked at him, she said, I want you to go get that box. I want you to open it up and, and see what's inside. And so he came uh, back to her hospital bed, and he had that box. And he had not looked inside of it, and he opens it right in front of her. And lo and behold, there's a, a doll that was crocheted in $95,000 cash. And he was kind of taken back by it. He goes, I have no idea what to make of this. Like, what in the world is going on? She said, well, she said, all these years, she said, our marriage has been really good. She said, my mom gave me some advice when we were dating. And she said, if, if you ever have problems with this boy, which you're going to when you marry him, she said, I'm going to give you uh, just one bit of information that, that if you do, I think will help. And she said, well, what is that, mom? And her mom said, well, if, if you will just keep your mouth closed when he makes you mad and get you a little crochet and, and start doing dolls, then I think you'll be happy. Well, when he heard that, his heart was just, I mean, struck. Like he was like, oh, man, that... Only one doll. Like, that's impressive. Like, I, I, so you're, I only upset you one time. And she, he goes, but, but I'm confused. What's the $95,000 for? And she said, well, I've been selling dolls for 60 years. <laughs> so, ladies, if you get nothing else out of this, start crocheting dolls. This is our fourth week uh, of this series from this day forward. And those are all vows that married couples said, you know, for better or worse, for richer or poor, in sickness and in health. But it's a commitment that we made. And so over the last few weeks, we talked about the theology of marriage. We talked about communication and conflict. Last week, I thought Brian did an awesome job of discussing intimacy. That's not just sex, but it's an emotional intimacy. It's intellectual and uh, that you really work on your relationship with your spouse. Well, today we're going to talk about another practical area that couples struggle, and that is the area of finances. Now, I'll tell you, finances have changed drastically over the last 60 years. Back in the 1950s, you didn't have some of the challenges that you have now. And so let me just tell you five ways that things have kind of changed. Real quickly, uh, you've got the change of identity theft. You didn't have identity theft back in the 50s, 60s, or 70s, but now it's a rampant thing in our culture. Matter of fact, if you had a Target card a few years ago, you realized that you might be the victim of identity theft. That's happening more and more and more. But the reason why is because of the other challenges that have happened, which gives rise to identity theft. And uh, among those are, one, retirement, just planning for retirement. Back in the 1950s and 60s, estimated 42% of individuals' employers had pension plans. If you've seen recently on the news, Dallas, all up in arms because of the pension plan that's at risk. So companies used to offer pension plans, and they would save and re for people's retirements. Now, it's largely left up to the individual. And so the individuals are having to plan for retirement. The problem is, is that most of us have struggled to do that, and that's why we're all headed on the, the track to be greeters at Walmart when we're old, because we've really had a hard time doing that. Healthcare is a huge challenge. Healthcare in the 1950s and 60s was an estimated $23 million. Right now, healthcare in the States alone is about $3.1 trillion, and it's growing every day. 
the average family pays about ten to 15000 annually, and there's some of you in here who go, I would love to pay that. There's others of us that maybe it's not quite that much, but that's the annual percentage of what people are paying. That's the estimated cost. That's huge. And then it leads to credit card debt. Back when credit card was first established, it was in the 1950s, which didn't really take a whole lot of a hold here because it was a diner club card. It was something that you could almost do like a layaway plan. It was a Uh, in a sense, an opportunity to go into a restaurant and put it on a tab. It was a card. But later in the 70s, it really picked up steam. And with our baby boomers, they began to go opposite direction of what their parents did. And so obviously, we had a cycle of adults that went through um, some tough days, the depression and a lot of other things that gave them fiscal responsibility. But their children in the 1970s, when they were smoking dope, decided, hey, that's true, right? Should I not have said that? Y'all seem stunned. <laughs> they also decided, hey, let's go ahead and roll up <laughs> our credit cards too, right? And so debt went from about 4000 in a family to right now almost 130000 per individual with your mortgage included. And so the average adult in here is $130,000 worth of debt. The average graduate, when they're 22, walking out of Texas A&M University has anywhere from thirty dollars to $35,000 worth of debt. If they go to a private school like TCU, we're looking at ninety dollars to $100,000 of debt. And they're walking into a marriage with all of these challenges right before them. Now, what's interesting is, is people like Dave Ramsey, uh, who are growing uh, in their stats about America would say that 80% of Americans would say that they feel chained or strapped by their finances, meaning they don't feel like they're free to give, free to explore, free to be generous, and free to, in a sense, own their money or win with it. And I think that it's true here too. Now, In our 4C survey, which we recently did for members, which doesn't include everybody here, about 40% of our members would say that they, they have a hard time winning with money. So about six out of every 10 couples here say that they they feel like they're doing well and managing money the way that the Lord would want, but four out of every 10 would say, no, we really struggle to do that. And so today, we want to help you with that. And I think the best way for us to view this is if we can view it from the lens of the gospel. Now, it's kind of a new thought in terms of how we view money, but that's how we need to view it today. And so in the theology of marriage, it's understanding what Christ did for us and who we are as Christ followers. Because quite honestly, if you're not a Christ follower, then you're free to do whatever you want with your money. But if you are a Christ follower, then you realize that what you have is not yours, that there was someone who entrusted it to you, which is the idea of a steward. A steward is someone who gives you resources to manage. And so let me give you a working definition. I think that's helpful as we go through the day. And that is a person who manages what? Another's resources and then seeks to manage those so well because you, you have the owner's vision and mission in mind. And so you're not looking at it as this is mine, but you're looking at it as it's someone else's entrusted to my care. And I think 1 Chronicles 29, 11 and 12 kind of puts into perspective for me. And it just says, yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and on the earth is yours. So everything is his. 
Yours is the kingdom of Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand is to make great and to give strength to all. And so if we realize that the resources we have are stewarded to us by the God who owns everything, then it allows us to begin to get some perspective. And so if we're going to get perspective in the midst of a society where there's lots of challenges over this topic, the question is, how do we do it? And I think there's four quick things that you and I could consider. Now, these are just things that I hope get the ball rolling. They're, they're, you're not going to walk away today and, go and be a financial expert. It's going to take time and ultimately not just time, but diligent choices to win financially. Because winning financially is not based off of intentions, but actual choices. Because I think all of us intended to get married and to be rich, right? Like men, you intended to make money, right? Amen? Amen. Yeah, hey, come on, guys. Like, you intended to make money, right? Some of you are like, I don't know. I mean, yeah, and I'm not talking about what, make it just so your wife could spend it. I'm t- but we intended to be successful, right? But now we look up and we go, but my intentions didn't really work out for me. And here's why. Because intentions and choices are two totally different things. And so we have to choose to win. And so how do we begin doing that? Number one is you have to plan intentionally. You have to plan intentionally. So you have to make concerted and diligent choices day after day after day. Proverbs 21.5 says it this way, the plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. And so as we become one flesh, the idea of Matthew chapter 19, Genesis chapter 2, leaving your father and mother, cleaving together, become one flesh, a family, means that you have to get a plan as a family. Now I'll tell you, here's why many of us in this room have failed to get a plan. And that is because of the awkward conversations that are posed when you talk about finances. When I got married to my wife, she did not want to talk about finances. Matter of fact, even the sheer thought of having a conversation brought tears from her eyes. Like literally every time we talked about the area of finances, she would cry. And so here's the way she perceived finances from her past. Brandon, you keep the books and you tell me when we have enough to spend. And other than that, I won't spend anything. And so she saw me as the dictatorial manager of our funds. And if I gave her permission, then she had enough. And the reason why is because in her family, finances were never talked about. Why? Because baby boomer generation had a thought process of finances as this. They're mine, they're private, and you need not to know much about it. And so they did not teach their children a whole lot about it. Yes, they taught you how to write a check, and they taught you this. Boy, I'm going to open this bank account, but you'd never, ever bounce a check. And outside of that, that was the financial advice that I got. That was the financial advice that our parents gave many of us in this room. But they never told us how to plan intentionally. They never gave you the idea of what that looks like. And so for Kelly and I, it was six years in our marriage before, by God's grace, we came across something that taught us how to begin planning intentionally. And it started with something simple like a budget. And so we were beginning to, as we got into this process of budgeting and talking and planning intentionally, we were really beginning to have some conversations about our past, about our present, and things about our present, about, hey, how, how do we manage the future? How, how do we begin to plan and save? And why is it that we have so much money 
coming in, but we seem to have so little left at the end of the month. And we began to realize that once we started to put a plan in place, and it started with this idea of a budget, that we had some problems happening on paper. What were the problems on paper? Well, we realized that we were spending almost $800 for two people to eat out every month. But we were free. We were single. We had the money. And we viewed finances this way. As long as there's a dollar amount in my account, I'm okay. And for some of us in this room, it's $300. You remember those days? Being in college, newly married. Hey, if we have 300 bucks, then we're good. Let's go eat. For some of you, the comfortability is not 3, 000, or 300, but it's 3,000. For some of you, it's not 3,000, but it's 30,000. But there's a number oftentimes perceived in your mind to say, as long as we have that, we're good. But planning intentionally means that you get a plan and it starts with a budget. So what does a budget look like? Well, I would say that it could be this. It's a 10-80-10 plan. Think about it when you do this, okay? If you were able to give 10%, give it away. If you were able to live on 80% and then store 10% back for a rainy day, okay? Saving for the future, almost in the sense of considering the ant, okay? Uh, I love Proverbs 6, verses 6 through 8. Go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief or officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in the summer and gathers her food in the harvest. Like, that's the one thing. We're always so surprised by ants, right? They were so diligent. They're so small, but they work together and they plan and plan and plan and plan and plan. And Americans, we don't plan, what we do is we spend what we have now as long as we have a comfortability in our account. The problem is what happens when one of you in your, your family or as a spouse, you get sick? What happens when your employer walks in tomorrow and says, hey, you've lost your job, we're done? Do you have anything in excess? Dave Ramsey would say that over 70% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck, and over 70% of Americans cannot pay off an emergency fund problem of over $1,500. And so that means if your air condition went out, you would have nothing. And so you need to budget. And as you budget, you need to plan for all the things. And the reason that you put it on paper is because you realize every single th month there are things that you're missing. So you get oh, what we spend on eating out. You know what you pay for the mortgage. You know what you pay for childcare for your kiddos. But you forget what? The garbage. You forget the internet. You forget some of those little things things, $50 here and $50 here. And by the time you finally get it on paper, and this is why some of you avoid it, is you're going to have a, oh no, moment. Because you realize you're spending far more than what you're bringing in. And so there's some of us in here that you don't want to plan intentionally because you already know what it's going to bring out. And then you think, and what an awkward conversation. You spent how much on the deer lease? You're tucking how much and putting it in your sock drawer? But you got to account for every single dollar. You got to get a plan. Planning intentionally says, we're going to budget, get it on paper. Then beyond that, get $1,000 and stick it away into your bank account. If you know that Americans have a problem of being able to pay off a $1,500 emergency fund, 
then get an emergency fund. For some of you, you go, I can't save $1,000. Well, some of you could save 500. But some of you, if you would just begin to scale back even in your living and some of the amenities that you and I have in our life, we could save $1,000 within 60 days. But the key is, is that you got to put back for a rainy day. Now, listen, you don't save $1,000 because you believe that this is going to work forever. Like somehow or another, you and I have to begin to increase the amount that we're comfortable with. So the person in here that you're like, oh yeah, that's me, $300 in my account, saving $1,000 in your account seems like something that will never happen. But that's the minimum that you need before you begin to pay off debt. And so get a little bit of cash reserve. Here's why. Because man, every single woman wants to be secure. You may be comfortable with $300 and knowing that you can live on ramen noodles and Taco Bell. But your wife does not feel secure like that. She may not tell you that. She may not vocalize it in her own way. But I promise you, she desires to be secure. And security means that there's something that you can fall back on. $1,000 is really your minimum. If you're single in here, I would say $500. But get it in a rainy day and then begin to tackle debt. Pay off debt. You and I know that most of us in this room have accumulated large amounts of debt. Yes? Let's pay it off. Let's get gazelle intense. We did uh, Financial Peace University about three years ago here, and it's incredible to see of the couples that began to get intense about paying off debt and their success stories. And I remember a lot of them working through and getting out of debt and how freeing that is for a lot of reasons and ways. And so pay off debt. Why? Because Proverbs 22.7 is a chief principle. The rich rules over the poor, the borrower slave to the lender. Yes? Listen to me. The lender goes to bed with peace. Why? Because as a lender, I know I can lay my head down and there's always someone who owes me money. So if I lose my job tomorrow, I can go collect on what I've lent out. But if I lose my job tomorrow, then I know that I can't, what, pay what I've borrowed. And so the borrower is always slave to the lender. There's always, tell, there's always someone telling you when you're going to pay and how much you're going to owe. And there's just no peace in that. There's no peace in having to be tied to a, an amount to pay. Now, listen, I realize that some of us in here are like, we know this. And it's uncomfortable to talk about, and it's even more uncomfortable because we know it's true. But it doesn't have to be that way. Like, you can get intense, begin to scale back, and begin to live in a way that stewards the things that God has given you in a way that pleases Him, but also brings, what, peace and harmony in your relationship. And that's the goal, to honor Him and to honor each other. Pay off debt, and then but then begin to really save intentionally. So then plan to save three to six months. So here's the deal. Kelly and I were married for six or seven years before we finally realized this. Crazy, huh? Six or seven years, the comfortability that we had was about $2,500 to $3,000 in our account. If we had that, we were good. We, felt all, we always felt secure. Why? Because we knew what we were bringing in. And then one day, we, we took a course that changed our life. And as we began to really dive in, we began to get rid of stuff. And in one year, almost probably 18 months, we were able to save $45,000. And in about two and a half years' time, when we came to plant Stone Point Church, we had saved up $100,000. 
Now, what's interesting is, is we didn't know why we were saving. We thought we were saving because we were, we were trying to get a heads up on Kelly being able to stay home as a mom. We thought we were being able to kind of get ahead. And then here's what we did. We had children and planted a church all at the same time. And I am going to tell you that as of right now, we have dwindled that 100000 down to literally nothing. This year is the first time since we started Stone Point that we can actually, on budget, on paper, begin to save money again. The first time. And so we can put now $400 back every single month. And for the first time, we can begin to build for our future again. And listen, I'll tell you that if you have ever done this, it is really tough not being able to put money away. And so you need to know that I understand. I, I get what you're saying when you can't do what you want to do. Like you have goals and you just don't have enough. But one of the things that we felt called to was for my wife to stay at home and we, we didn't budge on that. And so we have, it's been tight around our house, but by God's grace and because of your generosity, it's not gonna be tight anymore, as tight. Now, I'm not going to save 45000 in a year, but to be able to save three or 4000 is a really good thing. Start somewhere. Get a plan, get out of debt, and start saving for your future. Three to six months is a good goal. That means that if your husband or you as a wife lost your job, or as a single, you lost your job, or as a single, you want to travel the world, to have three or six months expenses set back somewhere is a really comfortable thing. Because if your spouse gets laid off tomorrow, there's not a fight at all. Matter of fact, you take a week off and pray about it, and then you go, I'll go searching for a job. Understand? If you get laid off tomorrow and you have no cash reserves, it's a fight. You don't even pray about it, and you just what, start clamoring for money, right? And so think about the peace that it gives. And then the reason we do it is to bless people with our generosity. Like we want to bless people, which leads us to point number two. You don't just need to plan intentionally, but you need to give sacrificially. Now, the reason I put this as number two is not because I believed it's number two. I actually believe it's number one. But I put it there because I wanted to ease you into this topic because I realized today that there's a first-time guest here. And as a first-time guest, you already have a, a mantra in your mind about what church is going to be like, right? And then you never want to go, and then you hear them talking about, hey, I want your money, right? And so I hope that you understand at Stone Point, our goal is not to get your money. Our goal is to help you be successful with money. And the reason why is because we need to tie it to the gospel. And I think this is priority going back to the very first week of the theology of marriage. The theology of marriage, Ephesians chapter 5, says that Christ loved the church and he gave himself up for her. In turn, the church would love Christ back, okay? So think about it, week one, theology of marriage. Christ gave himself willingly, joyfully, and sacrificially. He laid his life down. And husbands, in week one, we challenged you to be like who? Jesus, because you are a picture of Jesus to the world. Husbands, if the world is going to see the gospel through the lens of your family, it is tied directly to how well you love and live like Jesus, and so if you love and you nourish and you care well, husbands, then people are going to see that you're loving and leading like Jesus because you have a precious bride. As the church, we are the bride of Christ. But listen, ladies, you are the bride of your husband and you are to cherish and honor and to respect him and you are to nurture and encourage. We are the hands and the feet of Christ. So he is the head, we are the body. We have to do our part. So think of it, if you tied your 
you're giving in terms of a theological view, then it goes bigger than he just wants my money. And we begin to realize that if Christ gave sacrificially and he gave willingly and he gave joyfully, then maybe as the church, that's what he's hoping we would do back, that we would give willingly and sacrificially and joyfully, right? I mean, think sacrificially. Sacrificially, he gives you this picture, and Jesus is talking in Luke chapter 21, verses 1 through 4. Jesus sees some people coming in to the temple, and they're going to put their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow, and she put in two small copper coins and said, Truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put more in than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she said, what? She gave out of the poverty that she had, and she what? Gave out of everything she had. So she gives out of everything, everybody else gives out of the abundance. Now that reminds me of the American culture. Think about it. The purpose of us putting a plan on paper, budgeting, is not so that you can budget all the different things here. Okay, we got childcare. Okay, we've got uh, extra date nights. Okay, we got garbage. We got internet. Okay, we got food. We got water. Okay, great, 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 great. Oh, no. Asterisk at the bottom. I only have a little bit to give to the Lord. And that's how we view the area of finances. If I have a little bit left over, then I'll give out of my abundance. The lady says, no, I'm giving out of what I have. That's the purpose of getting a plan in place is so that you would give out of the first fruit, out of the abundance of what God has given. That's sacrificial giving, giving out of what you have, not what you have left over. And most of us, if we're honest, we give out of what we have left over. But I would just kind of give you this challenge. What if you and I trusted that if everything that we have is the Lord's, then he can produce more if he had like? I mean, think about it. When we begin to have some challenges at Stone Point financially, here's what we pray for. We pray that God would move his resources from one account to another. Amen? That's it. Why? Because it's all his. It's just sitting in a different bank account. Understand? Some of you are like, I'm so confused. Listen, what you have in your bank account is the Lord's to begin with. When he moves your heart, you'll move it from one bank account to another, and God will see sufficiently across the span, whether it's our church or a need in your neighborhood, because God controls it all. It's all his. He, he has it all, understand? So we give sacrificially, not out of the abundance, but out of what we have, and then joyfully and not under compulsion. Paul writes to the church in Corinth, who is, they were struggling with their giving and some of their commitments. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7, he says, each one of us must you know, give what we made up in our mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. How many of us give, but we're not very cheerful? We almost kind of do it out of compulsion, out of obligation. But God wants us to give generally, generously. And here's what I want you to see. The way that you view giving whether you, whatever stance you, you think, whether it's the church or, man, all pastors want your money, whatever your thought process is, it's either tied to one or two things, a steward mentality or an ownership mentality. A stewardship mentality says, it's not mine in the first place, so I give willingly. An ownership mentality says, I made this, it belongs to me, and you don't tell me what to do with it. As a Christian, you can't have an ownership mentality. If you're not a Christian, then by all means, you can own that mentality and you have no obligation to anyone. But as a Christian, 
we have an obligation to be stewards of the things God's entrusted our care. Amen? But I love this. Regardless of your thought, whether you're an owner or you see yourself as a steward, Calvin Coolidge, the 30th president of the United States, said this. No person has ever been honored for what he received, but only for what he gave. In your epitaph or on your tombstone, nobody's ever going to talk about all the money you gained. But they will certainly make a big deal about all the money you gave. And so what would people make a big deal about in your life? All the money you're receiving or all the money that you're giving away? Which leads me to this point. If you and I are going to be able to give anything away, you and I have to not just plan intentionally, give sacrificially, but honestly, we're going to have to begin to live abnormally. Live abnormally. Like, let me ask you this question. Why do you want to be normal? Why do you want to be normal? But here's normal. You got a guy who works at a pretty good co- you know, company. He's not the CEO, but he's not the low man on the totem pole. And he makes a pretty good salary, 60, 65,000, sometimes even more, 80,000. And he's the guy who has the credit card, and he's the guy who gets in front of his company, and he's knocking a few back, and he goes, hey, guys, this one's on me tonight. And he buys everybody's dinner, and he buys all the drinks there too. But what's interesting is, is that guy's going to go in debt that month because he doesn't have enough already to cover his mortgage, his two vehicles, his kid's private school, all the amenities and luxuries he has. But all the while, all the friends look at him and go, man, he's got his life together. And listen, that's normal. And I don't want to be normal. I want to live abnormally. Why? Because this is not my home. And so don't let your income determine your lifestyle. And listen, Don't let banks tell you what you can afford. In 2008, we had an incredible crash. Some of us in here may have lost our homes. And here's why. Because banks told you what you could afford and what they were willing to lend you. And when banks make a habit of telling people what they can afford and how much they can lend you, when people cannot pay for it, we have a crash. And that crash doesn't just affect you or your family. Guess what? It affects an entire nation. Why? Because we become a nation that wants to live like everyone else. Proverbs 30, verse 8 and 9 says, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and still and profane the name of my God. He goes, I don't want to be the guy who's rich and I forget where, God, you, you, you gave me. I don't want to believe that I'm the one who built the wealth. At the same time, Lord, please don't allow me to be poor and broke where I'm having to steal or somehow slide people in to get in the meal. Lord, can I just have enough? It's the idea of contentment. And so the idea is simplicity is far better than having too much or too little. And that's the prayer. It's the same thing that Paul says in Philippians 4. We know verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. But if you get some context, it's it's totally different. In verse 11, he says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've already learned in whatever situation I'm in to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. He goes, I know what it's like to want and not have. I also know what it's to, to have and not want. 
But he goes, I'm hoping that I realize contentment means I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Meaning, what would it look like just to be content? Don't try to keep up with every single other person. Why? Because you'll never keep up. There will always be more that you want. And so then surround yourself with people that you can trust. People that you can trust. Now you're like, okay, what does that mean? So let me put a little asterisk on this. People you can trust doesn't mean anybody that you can talk to, but specifically in this context, people who have one with money. Understand? There's a big difference. Um, I thought I could trust a guy a few years ago, and he's still a very good guy, but he talked me into buying some stock and about $10,000 worth. The whole idea of it was that among my 10,000 investment, I could take it out almost any time, and I had already made $7,500 on my stock. Well, about a year in, I go, hey, can I just go ahead and withdraw some of that? Uh, no, not yet. Well, here it is about 12 years later, and I've lost all of my money. And I had a guy who I didn't realize at the time who could trust, but he goes, hey, Brandon, I don't think it's a really good idea. Now, it was early on in that relationship, but a few years later, I realized that he was the president of his company, and I realized he would retire probably on millions and be able to buy any land he wanted in the state of Texas. And as a financial advisor, I should have listened to him because he was going, hey, don't buy into the get-rich-quick thing. Be very careful here. And I bought this stock, and I lost all that stock, and I didn't listen to wise counsel. But listen, that was before I knew wise counsel existed, understand? Because I was young. And I thought I knew everything. But Proverbs chapter 15 tells me different. Without counsel, plans fail. And without many advisors, but with many advisors, they succeed. Proverbs 12, 15, the way of the fool seems right to him, but a wise man listens to advice. I was once a fool in this area. And even now, I still do foolish things. But some people that I trust, they can speak into my life and go, hey, man, you don't need to get back into debt. Hey, man, you don't need this hey, dude, you don't have to keep up with them, is a really good thing. And so get in the habit of discussing big decisions with people you trust. Now, if you hold the idea that, hey, my finances are private, then you're not going to speak with anybody about those things. But if you can get into the view of, look, my finances are not just my business, but they're God's business, and I want to get anybody in that can help me be about God's business, then you can begin to win with money. A trusted advisor doesn't mean that you're going to get some new organic spam at the grocery store and you have to call your trusted advisor to see if you can buy it, okay? Understand? Is there organic spam? That's my next business venture. Who's in? I need to, yeah. Talk to me after the service, baby. We'll get going, right? But listen, trusted advisors you can speak to. And then listen, don't get caught up in the comparison trap. You'll never win. You'll never win. Understand that the goal is not to be normal and the goal is not to be your friends. The goal is to be godly and the goal is to serve him with all of our hearts, not as if we're pleasing men, but if we're pleasing the Lord. And listen, to me, it's unbelievable as Christians how we relate that to so many areas in our life. But in the area of finance, we really struggle to please the Lord in it. So it's almost like he wants us to be faithful to our small group. He wants us to be faithful to our church. He wants us to be faithful to serve. He wants us to be faithful in missions. He wants us to be faithful in telling the gospel of the people. But listen, if you tie it back down to the display of the gospel, one of the greatest displays of the gospel is how you handle the resources he's given you. 
And so it almost seems a little bit oxymoronish if you, if you go, hey, I'm really reaching the lost and I'm going on missions and I'm doing all of this stuff. Meanwhile, you slide it all on the credit card and build more and more debt as you're doing it. That doesn't seem biblical. And so don't compare yourself to others. And I think the only way that we can live intentionally and plan intentionally, I think the only way that we can begin to do the things that we've talked about is if you do number four, and that's think eternally. You have to think eternally. Know that this is not our home, but more than that, understand what what the Bible says. The Bible says over 2,300 verses about finances and money alone. That's more than heaven. That's more than a lot of other issues in our faith that we want to talk about. He talks about this a lot. In Matthew chapter 6, you'll see that Jesus is going to talk about where your treasure is and where your treasure is, there's your heart also. He's also going to say, hey, you can't serve both God and money later on. And then at the very end of that passage, he goes, hey, you shouldn't worry. And five times he goes, hey, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. Why? Because the most trusted advisor we have is God. But when it comes to this idea of money biblically, I think there's, it's important to know two things. Number one, God's not trying to get you when it comes to money. Why? Because he already owns it all. Psalm 50 clearly says the Lord owns the cattle on a thousand hills. If he wants more cattle, he'll get them. If he wants more wealth, he's got it all. Matter of fact, in verse 12 of Psalm 50, he goes, if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. Why? Because the world is mine, all is fullness. Colossians 1, everything that has been made has been made for God, for his purpose, both visible and invisible. If God wants more, he'll make more. Do you understand? Like in God's economy, he doesn't have a money issue, and so he doesn't need yours. I'll go on record and say at Stone Point, we're going to trust God, and we don't need your money. We are blessed by your generosity, and you are blessing lots of people. I know one family this week, because of a a situation in their family, we were able to bless them right when we heard the need with $1,000 like that. And what you're doing is making a huge difference, and you are thinking eternally when you give to kingdom-focused things. And we're going to steward it well. That's our goal. But just as God doesn't want your money, he doesn't want money to possess you. And I think you'll see that in every biblical situation, when there's money at stake, you'll see their heart. Zacchaeus. Jesus goes to his heart, or to his home, to his heart, okay? And what does Zacchaeus do? He turns around and he pays all of his debts four times what he owed. Think about in Acts chapter 2, all the way through the book of Acts, you'll see time and time and time again, all the way up to Acts chapter 8, really, you'll see the church. People came to know Christ, they followed him as the Lord, and then what's interesting is they began to give to others as they had a need. Like there was a sacrificial giving that was taking place. Why? Because God had changed their heart. It is a direct reflection of the heart change when you begin to be generous. And you'd be surprised at how many people want to be deacons, want to be journey group leaders, want a position and power in the church. They want to even tell the church how to manage it. But they don't manage their own. And I really believe, and I I would stand by this, every deacon in every church in Van Zandt County, every single man who wants prominence, Sunday school teacher, leader, etc., the first place you go, it should be right to their checkbook. Because it amazes me the number of people who go, I want to know where you're spending my money. And then it gets back down to it. And you go, well, let's talk about how much you gave this year. And you realize they hadn't given anything, but they want to give directives. 
And so you need to know that you can't be the rich young ruler, Matthew, cha- or, uh, Matthew chapter 19. The rich young ruler, he comes to Jesus and he goes, Jesus, what must I do to follow you? I've done everything to keep the law. And Jesus says this one thing. He goes, hey, listen, I get it. You've done well. And now take all your possessions, give them to the poor and come and follow me. And the guy walked away. You think Jesus cares about what we do? Yes. And so I encourage you, live eternally. Think eternally. If this is not your home, then the question is, is while we're here and stewarding God's resources, what difference are we going to make with it? Amen? Let me show you this quick video that we stumbled across, and, and, and I want just to encourage you with this because I, I think it will help you make an impact as we move forward. I used to be a bank robber, and I served some time in prison, and uh, yes, sir. My dad thinks I'm here to scream. I'm debt-free for my school loan debt. That was actually the first time I became debt-free. I'm actually here to tell my dad that I have paid off my mortgage. Wow! Look at that! (laughs) It was a Saturday night, four days before Christmas, when the house burned. It's devastating. We felt like we lost everything when our house burned down. The last thing I paid off was the restitution. That was actually just Friday down in the courthouse in uh, downtown Dallas at the federal building down there. I I don't want to exaggerate, but to say that it's the same as the day that I got out of prison is how I felt when I got in the button and I pushed one on the elevator to get out of that place and I was done. That was it, man. My past was in the past and I didn't know anybody anymore. And that was the end of it. I love it. Being debt-free has allowed me to relax. It's allowed me to unplug from my work and allowed me to travel the world. Yeah, there's not any stopping you. You've got, you've got plans for money. Money's going to be a tool in your hands your whole life. Staying dedicated and disciplined and giving up leisurely activities for a short term is a thousand percent worth the experience and the feelings that come with it. I went and got a shovel and was looking through some just different areas of the house and, and I found a, a little piece of my son Memphis' baby book and the footprints were still there. And it, it, things just began to get beautiful. People would just come and bless us. It was amazing. We got things that were beautiful because that's what the Lord wanted for us at that moment. But we had lived in disaster even before the fire. I can give money to some other family that has a fire. We always gave whenever the Lord led. But now we can give when the Lord leads or when we just feel like it. Count it down. Let's hear a great debt-free scream. Three, two, one, I'm debt free! (laughs) I'm debt free! (laughs) I love it. We're debt free! So the 4C survey, um, every two years that we do for our members, has once again revealed that our members say we would like some help financially. 
And so we are going to offer Financial Peace University, a nine-week course starting on March 23rd, going through uh, May 19th, every Thursday from 7 to 9 p.m. If you would say, I'm interested in that class, then I encourage you to do one thing. Grab a communication card, right on the back, I am interested in Financial Peace University. Put your name on the front. When you're leaving out the front doors of our building, put it in one of the two offering boxes. This week, we're going to draw from all those cards, and we're going to bless one family with a free kit, Child care, everything for you to be able to come and attend Financial Peace University. And here's the reason I did. Because when I was reading something from Dave Ramsey, just a book, there was one line that grabbed my attention and it stuck with me forever. And he says time and time and time again, if you want to live like no one else, you got to live like no one else. In a sense, he goes, you got to be weird. You can't desire to just be normal all your life. And so you got to do something different. If what's working or not working right now isn't working, then let's do something different. And so we want to offer that to our church and encourage you to take advantage of it. You can sign up online. You can sign up at a resource counter. But if right now you go, hey, I just want to get some information, then take advantage of that communication card because we'll get you information to your email. But more than that, we'll even enter you into the drawing this week. We love you, and I pray this is a blessing to you. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for this morning, and God, we realize that all that we have is yours. And I'm so grateful for stories, not just around the nation, but even in this church of people who have screamed, we're debt-free. And Lord, we know that the greatest debt that we're free of is the debt of sin and shame. And Lord, we know that we were once guilty before a holy God. And Lord, because of your son, Jesus, you have given us new life in Christ. You have forgiven us our sins and you desire for us to grow up in you. But Father, I pray that we would not live under this delusional guise that growing up in you means everything other than our money and our time and our talent and our treasure. And so God, may we give it all to you. May we serve you as if we're serving the Lord heartily, not as if we're serving men. So may we not do it under obligation or compulsion for someone else. May we not do it because someone needing something from us, but may we give and may we save and may we plan intentionally because you desire it of us. And so God, help us to do this by thinking eternally. We love you and we, we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.